Welcome back to the Signal the Noise podcast on Pro Sound Web, sponsored by Shure. My name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the technical editor of Live Sound International and Pro Sound Web. And as always, I'm joined by my two handsome and dashing co-hosts, Chris Leonard and Kyle Trinside. What's going on, gentlemen? How's it going? Oh, thanks, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, it's it's great to hear your voice Happy again. Happy Valentine's Day to you too, bud. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, and tonight you. is we thank I love you too, buddy. We have a very special actually, you know what? This is pretty cool. We have a couple of, of really special guests tonight. Um, we have a, a, a special guest host with us tonight. Um, he was just recently on. Actually, he's the only two-time guest of this podcast. So I guess this will be his third appearance on this podcast. My friend, Mr. Jim Yakabuski. Jim, what's going on? Hey, how's everyone doing? Yay. If we don't slow down, yeah. we're going we're, we're to have to start paying him if we don't slow down. So it's, uh, <laughs> we got we to pace this out. In Canada, we call that a hat trick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the reason In Jim St. is Louis, with we us call tonight. call it champions. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, you're still on the champions thing. Okay. Hey, we're still Stanley Cup champions until that's, that's, someone hey, else wins. You know it. what? I, I I can't take that away from you, man. Um, the reason I have asked Jim to be here with us this episode is because uh, back in March of 2019, Jim and I wrote a Viewpoints article talking about system tilt and should it be tilted in the base and should it be flat in the base. And we sort of went through a uh, a very friendly back and forth on the merits of each approach, and we got an email from none other than Mr. Howard Page, who's our guest tonight. And um, he shared his thoughts, and they were really interesting. And Howard's done a lot of speaking and talking about this issue. And I'm really excited to have everyone hear what Howard has to say about it. And so because of that uh, string of events, I asked Jim to come on and, and be a guest host with us tonight. And for some reason, the stars actually aligned, and we have all five of us here at the same time to record. And so, uh, Chris, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, so uh, Howard is currently the Senior Director of Engineering at Claire Global, uh, but before that, he's spent about 17 years as a partner with Jans in Australia, uh, and then eventually on to Shoco, which which many of you know is you know, eventually bought by Claire. Uh, he's toured with a few small acts like Sting, Van Halen, <laughs> Phil Collins, the Bee Gees, James Taylor, Paul Simon, Mariah Who? Carey, Paul McCartney. I, 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 had to, I had to research all these names. I wasn't sure, but yeah, it's just to name a few. So My, well, my toes <laughs> hurt from all the name dropping. <laughs> uh, Howard, it's, uh, I'm gl- glad to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor, actually. I, I've listened to the other podcasts, and uh, I've learned quite a lot. Um, you know, I've learned about uh, food deliveries at home and stuff. Yes. Like that. <laughs> I have one fan, and his name is Howard Page. I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. <laughs> one fan. Quit while you're ahead, Kyle. No, exactly. We're so glad to have you. Howard, I'll bring it up later, but we met each other once too, and you had me so nervous at, at one point. But what you told me, I take with me to this day. Oh really? I I where did we meet? I, it, I'm sure it was some uh, some touring situation, was it? It was. So I was Kyle with Fallout Boy for a while, and you came out oh. to one of our shows, and you sat behind me and watched me mix on my XL4. I believe you were working with Studer on some Studer stuff, and so we talked about that. And then after the show, I was like, I 
seriously, I was sweating. I'm going to go ahead and tell you because <laughs> I'm waiting on my chicken now. Um, uh, yes. But I was sweating and I asked her, I was like, hey, what would you do different? And you you gave me the a line about imaging and watching the stage and stepping back from the console, quit noodling so much and make it sound like what you see. And yes. I oh, took, the audio, the, the, um, the audio scan, I think I may have called it, where yes, you, sir. you're looking at the stage with your eyes, but you're actually looking at it with your ears. Correct. Yes, I remember, I remember that, yes. I, uh, I, that's, that's a line or a, a process from my, when I, when I teach, I do a lot of teaching at Clare to the senior people, and it's, you know, those that sort of aren't necessarily actually mixers now. They're more system engineers, but they're moving you know, as you know, on tour, there's many, many times when a person is suddenly thrust into the actual mixing seat through illness or someone gets fired or whatever. And uh, we try and, you know, we certainly try and prepare them in terms of mixing ability, at least to have some chance of success, you know. Well, the guys at Claire are pretty much top notch. We've, I mean, touring professionals know that that they're well taken care of. They're well versed. Um, it, I enjoyed using them, but I thought it was really cool during my. I don't know. It felt like a short tenure, but when I was using Claire, you came out to a show. ML came out to a show. Troy Claire. I mean, the the laundry list of of people that I looked up to in the industry came out and actually spent time with their their clients. And I thought that was super cool. And like I said, I, I take what you said with me pretty much every time I mix, which isn't much anymore. But um, yeah, I've, I really appreciated you even just sitting there and watching. It was cool. You lasted, yeah, it, it, you lasted the whole <laughs> show. You did it. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I, I, um, I, that, that, um, advice has gone a hell of a long way because you're not the first that's come back and said, um, you know, I, I taught myself to do that, you know, and how many times, you know, that low mid area is so filled in a mix that how many times have you felt like you've seen a show and you felt like the keyboard player might as well pack up and go home because he really wasn't there at all because he falls into, you know, especially if there's big driving guitars, you know, you try and you've got to be very careful putting a keyboard against big driving guitars, especially if he's, you know, only playing pads or chords against driving guitars. They all fall into that, you know, that hundred to five hundred area, and it, it gets a bit tricky. For sure. You know, Howard, I I think for me the the driving motivation to sort of go back to tuning things flat was I I did a series of gigs that was a bunch of different acts, but they were all in the same room. It was like this eighteen hundred seat theater, and it was the same PA every time. And you know, I could do whatever I wanted. I could hang it however I wanted and tune it however I wanted. And regardless of what I tried, I was always cutting out like two hundred or four hundred out of all my inputs. I was just cutting this low mid stuff. And so I said, well, why why am I tuning with a tilt and then cutting it all back? So let me tune it flat. And then I noticed that show, I didn't have to go in and put EQ on everything. And I was like, well, that's a game changer. I'm going to do that from now on. And then, right. um, you know, the, the cool thing is I had an artist ask for a board mix at that show. And usually I have to take the board mix in and, and you know, hit it with EQ and try to get it to sound normal. Um, and that time I didn't have to do anything. I just was able to bounce it and it sounded like it was supposed to sound. And so I'm like, okay, I'm sold 100%. You know, that's, um, so your, um, 
your wisdom was kind of guiding me on that. And and some of the conversations I've had with Jim as well were kind of running through my head. And when I tried that out, I'm like, yep, this is those are the two reasons that I am now um, trying to get my system as flat as I can whenever I can, um, because it reduces the amount of work I have to do in the mix. And I do a lot of one-offs, so I don't have a board mix that I need to get to sound correct every night. I'm usually building the mix on the day. And so for right. me, that that means, you know, a, a, another EQ filter that I don't have to go and drop in. Um, and then, you know, when, when you go back and you hear the recording later and it sounds like it was supposed to sound, I think I, I sent you an email with an example of that and you were like, yep, there yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I felt like for, for many years until you guys came along, especially Jim, who wrote the original article, I really felt that I was, you know, banging my head against a wall to some degree because I could never, you know, I, I would get, uh, if I went out on a tour with, you know, recently, last year I did a month with James Taylor, which is a superb, capable of a superb result. And I've been with Sting because he won't let me go forever. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I get the best reviews I've seen mentioning the sound. I mean, there's many, many reviews of shows, of course. Rarely, if ever, do they mention the sound. They only mention the sound if it's, awful awful or stunningly good you know it it seems that that the, it and it's a matter of that we could talk about later as a matter of what is the attention drawn to um when you go to a live show and uh you know i've been getting the results but when i talk to a lot of mixers um maybe the older ones who are so used to dealing with the tilt being there that they just take it for granted. And um, and I watch, you know, I mean, when I tour Europe with Sting, um, we arrive at 8 o'clock in the morning and set our gear up on rolling risers and uh, do a line check and no sound check, of course, and roll it all back and then we're captive for the day. And I watch all these various age group of, of uh, mixers come along and um, spend you know, load their file and spend an hour and a half getting waves to work and um, they never, ever pick up a microphone and listen to the system. And they're depending, this is where it all falls apart, they are depending on the snapshots or the starting point if they don't use snapshots. They're depending on the starting point on that console that may have been made on a completely different system tuned a completely different way. And, uh, you know, I, I watch the result or I listen to the results and some have a stunning show by almost default. Some have a totally awful show um, and some have a mediocre show, you know, and everything in between because depending on, you know, what they pull up as their starting point mix, you know, based on loading there, you know, which we can do now in digital consoles. We never really could in the old days do it really accurately. Based on what they pull up, it either matches what the system, the big festival system has happens to be tuned to or it doesn't. And, you know, my method, the, the method of, you know, linear transfer of what comes out of the console actually comes out of the system as close as possible does in fact work. But you know, as you guys have found, and I was very, very glad to hear the feedback that, yes, it takes a while to get used to linear transfer. 
your mix has to be absolutely dead on because you're now hearing everything. Mm. You're not EQing to hear things. You know, you're not EQing differences in two guitars uh, ripping away with the same chord patterns. You know, you don't have to do a lot of work because what the two guitarists have decided is their sound is now being reproduced accurately. Same with everything else in the band. You know, it's it's an ongoing thing. So that's where I've, you know, I've come full circle from the old days when I, you know, did work in studios in Australia way, way back. Um, you know, my reference monitors were everything. You know, we trusted them implicitly, but they certainly didn't have a tilt on them. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what you made an you made another point similarly which was we spend you know every every sound engineer i talk to we love to talk about microphones we love to talk about why we like a certain mic and the tone and we choose our mics very carefully and then we put them through a pa that's got 20 db of bass tilt in it and so like <laughs> you, you made a point i've heard you make a point that you know that completely upends you know the reason for choosing this mic is that you've totally you've totally altered its tonality um, and yeah. I think a lot of people maybe don't think about how that whole ripples back to the input, like you mentioned. Well, it's a, yes, it's an epiphany for so many people. You know, I stand in front of a lot of young guys at Clare sometimes, you know, on early early initiation sessions, initiation to mixing and stuff. And, you know, I say one of the statements I make is the fact that any tilt on the sound system after the output of the mixing console is in fact on every channel of the mixing console before you start mixing, even with that whole mixing console EQ, channel EQ set to flat. And that's quite an epiphany for a lot of people, even though we all know as as long-term professionals know that that's absolutely obvious. You know, it's so obvious that you'd think, you know, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be such an epiphany, but it is. You know, they go, "Oh my God, yes, you're right." You know, Jim. Um, you know, to, one thing that's interesting is that both of you guys have worked uh, with the same artist. You both work with Van Halen, and both of you guys have been mixing for so long that you've sort of seen the industry change from the big, you know, jack o' lantern, uh, huge point source things to the modern line array and from analog consoles to digital consoles. And so I'm kind of wondering this idea of, okay, well, we want to hit the same target curve every night, you know, whether that's going to be flat or with a certain amount of low, low tilt or whatever that is, has that gotten easier because of today's tools, because we have modern analyzers and stuff? I mean, is it, is it more, um, feasible to try to achieve a flat PA now in in 2020 than it was in 1985. I I think so because you know for one thing with the line array principle you you know especially if you have a little bit of height and you have uh, the ability to put a long line of PA in there, um, you can at least control that the directionality of more frequencies. Um, than you ever could before. I mean, the old the old days of uh, of the big box PAs. I mean, the low end was absolutely going to go where it wanted to go. There was, mm-hmm. and and we're talking all the way up to you know 400, 500 hertz. It was just going to go sideways. It was going to go backwards. And so, um, just the fact that the PA systems will will throw the energy and the longer the line, the lower the frequency that you'll have control. Um, that helps so much. And I, I think 
you know, the measurement um, aspect is definitely uh, gives us a chance to to look at, you know, and, and try to achieve the curve we're after um, uh, in, uh, repeatedly. Um, and and just uh, the combination of those two things, I think, makes a huge difference. Um, you know, the, the, I think the trap is the getting drawn into the technology and forgetting to listen, you know, and, uh, and that is, uh, you know, I've heard it said when I've done a corporate event before, you know, we'll just hang these six, uh, you know, name your brand line array boxes uh, and, you know, you should be good at 200 feet back in a ballroom. Well, just because the, <laughs> the the math says it's going to throw further, it doesn't mean that the room characteristics and acoustics aren't going to take over a hundred feet back. So um, it still takes some common sense. Um, you know, if you if you step fifty feet away from the PA and it's and it sounds uh, muddy and dark, it, it it means the room is kind of winning. So um, you can't just totally trust um, that that these modern speakers will do everything they say they're going to do, uh, in every situation. But I think it is a lot easier. Uh, when I, when I did start, uh, the first company I ever worked for in the States was with DB sound and they had, he had quite large boxes and yes, they did go everywhere. So it was tough. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I even, I even, uh, tell people that, um, things like Smart and the other uh, FFT programs are a wonderful tool, but nothing beats training your ears to know what real sound is. And by real sound, I mean when you play, you know, hopefully a wave file or the best quality uh, recording you can through the PA, what do you believe, how do you believe it left the mastering suite? How did it really sound? You know, was that kick drum overwhelming and ridiculous, which it would be on a tilted PA, or what is the real sound of that record? And I mean, I, I do things like, you know, I'm constantly after, I don't know, 48 years or something, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly sitting in my car listening to various radio stations, various tracks of Sirius or whatever um, on my pretty flat car system and and I hear tracks that I think, oh, my God, that's got nice definition, it's got nice bottom end, it's got nice this, and I go and buy that track and I add it to my testing tracks knowing what that track should sound like overall, low frequency to high frequency. What, what does that track really sound like? You know, it's all very wonderful to play ACDC at 108 dB with a huge tilt on the bottom end. Yes, it sounds, you know, pretty amazing on a big PA, but is that what it really sounds like when it came out of the mastering room? And I think that's, I think all of this tilt thing we're talking about is we're trying to get back to what it really sounds like. And I'm not, you know, one of the things I've been accused of is being anti-bass, you know, and Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> and you work for Sting, is this right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, touchy, touchy subject at the moment, but never mind. Um, uh, what I mean by that is that 
I'm not anti-bass. I want the bass there if it's necessary for that style of music and how, you know, I always believe that the artist, somewhere along the chain of making records or making recordings and releasing them to the public, somewhere along that chain, that artist had control of what that of what his his or her sound was. And, you know, whether they heard the final master or whether they signed off on the final mix or whatever they did, that is the sound of that artist, you know. And when, you know, I don't want to preach, but, you know, when, when a, a person who becomes an audience member to a show, whenever someone goes to a live concert show, of rock and roll music, let's say, or classical or whatever, in their mind, without them even realising it, they know what it sounds like. That is what has enticed them to buy a ticket, spend a lot of money, take their best girl to the show. So really, you know, if you can give that audience as close as possible to what their prediction of what that artist sounds like, you know, that's why you get, you know, as I do and I don't want this to sound like an ego trip, but 20 people come up to me at the end of a gig and go, oh, my God, I come to shows in this hall all the time. It's the worst thing I've ever, this is the worst place, especially in Europe, some of the old barns, you know. They come up to me and say, oh, that's the best sound I've ever heard. And it's not my ego trip. What I have given them by the linear transfer method is I've given them exactly what that artist really sounds like that they can relate to. And that's why they think, oh, my God, it's the best sound I've ever, you know, it's not the best sound they've ever heard. It's the, be- it's the best representation mm. of what they had in their mind when they bought their ticket for that show. Well, that's a great point. I'm thinking about, you know, our job as in part of a transmission mechanism or as my friend Merlin would call it, a, a waveform delivery service. And so it's really about getting the artist's performance accurately you know, to as many of the seats as we can and and not having good seats and bad seats. And, you know, and that a lot of that falls to the system tech, but the idea that we're part of a transmission mechanism that's just there to connect the audience to the artist's performance, I think, um, really makes a lot of sense with the philosophy of what you're talking about. Yep. So can I jump in and ruffle some feathers then at this point? Yeah, bring yes. it on, Jim. Do it, do it, do it. I was going to do it <laughs> if you're not going to do it. <laughs> Yeah. We can we, need we can ruffle together. Uh, <laughs> so shrimp so, have feathers. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. Um, so so I think um, you know what what we spoke about in our article. And actually, Howard, I will tell you the very the first article that you wrote to us about was was a a co piece with me and Michael on um, a view in the viewpoints format where we kind of discussed this back and forth. Hey, Jim, how do you feel about bass tilt? And I said some stuff and he, so we were point counterpointing this, uh, this issue in that first one that you, um, that you commented on. And we were very thrilled that you, uh, agreed with us. Um, just you agreeing with anything I do is actually pretty, pretty <laughs> awesome. So oh, I, I don't know about that. It's just, <laughs> but, uh, okay. So, so you have your way and you actually mentioned earlier that you, you know, you go to these shows, you don't do a sound check and you uh, hopefully get some time with the PA to, to at least play these tracks that you know or you hear your voice or, you know, do your, 
your smarting, um, your measurements. Um, and then all these other bands um, do their thing. Um, and and you, you have mentioned to us that you carry tools with you that allow you to kind of undo what's been done to the PA by either a system tech or... Um, you know, just, just that preset loaded from the manufacturer is often extremely tilted. And, uh, so, so you have, you know, you have to carry the tools with you to, to undo some of that stuff to, to get your linear, uh, mix out there. So, um, so what do you do? What, what do we as engineers do in a festival situation? Um, when you don't get all the time you want, um, and you don't, you know, maybe don't even get much time to to take a measurement or see what the system looks like. Um, you you just kind of hear the other bands, and you look at maybe somebody else's smart system there or whatever, and you go, "Oh boy, there's there is a ton of low end in this PA," <laughs> and uh, your console mix is definitely not set up for that tilt. No, what the you bring up. Um, a very, very good point, Jim. The 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 problem at a festival, um, and the problem it, it's it's a problem that is common all over the world. As I tour with a different sound system model and type every single uh, show in Europe, for example, we don't carry, we don't always due to um, the practicality of it. You know, when you're doing. When you're touring as Sting does, you know, three in a rows, twos in a rows, and two of those three are already set up giant festivals in the middle of France and Germany and all over the place, it is not economically feasible to carry our own PA because we wouldn't, we'd only get to set it up, you know, one in every five gigs, if that. So you walk into a system. Now, there's a different sort of set of, uh, situations than than what you outline um sting in the case of sting sting would always come in as the headliner for that particular night of a festival so i have a lot of power to get to listen to the pa now it might only be 10 minutes um and it often is only 10 minutes due to early doors and there's you know 12 acts on the bill and for that day and you know and all sorts of other reasons but you develop you develop a uh i suppose you develop your ears and you know i can play any one of my reference music tracks i only need the first verse or the second you know the first two verses of one particular song to know exactly everything i need to know about the pa but that's years and years of training myself to know you know it's the same thing as you know i did the other day we just we're just designing some new things at at uh, claire and i walk over to the test area and i you know they play me some tracks sometimes they're my tracks because i give them a lot of my tracks but i just stand there and i know straight away whether it's too i call it too warm being the 100 to 500 area or it's too heavy in the bottom because that's not what the original track really sounds like or it's too bright because there's an edge or it's not forward, meaning the vocal is not sitting where it sits on 
a normal flat linear sound system like you know general you know studio monitors of some sort so but that's a training thing so when i get to a festival i can grab a mic and people look at me strange you know first thing i walk up to the system engineer for whatever country and place i'm in okay you know i need a mic here's my here's my mic I want a mic into a channel on the on my board and I want to hear it. Pan left, check one, two, three. Chan right, one, two, three. I know everything about that sound system, everything I need to know. And that's, you know, and I, I tell guys, young guys, I said, don't start, you know, depending on what you see on a screen or something. You should know what the reference is, what, what real sound sounds like. And once you... Once you've done that for, you know, a few years and obviously I've done it for a lot of years and a lot, lot of years before Smart was around, um, you just know straight away, you know. And you also understand, you know, and I explain this, this is a little long-winded and I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> I, also, I also explain what the musical instrument summation area is. And what that means is if you look at, one of the, you know, the Yamaha sound engineers book or there's, it's in a few books. There's a graph in there of the natural frequency range output of most musical instruments unmiked. In other words, this is the frequency range that a flute puts out, that a guitar puts out, that a bass guitar puts out, that a kick drum puts out, and they're all graphed. And if you draw a line at 100 cycles and another line at 500 cycles, you will very soon realise that the strongest acoustic output of most musical instruments falls into that lovely low mid area, 100 to 500. But the other, that's one whammy that you've got to remember when you're mixing, uh, especially using flat system and flat mics. The other thing you've got to remember is where do these big sound systems sum with these reverberant airspaces that we all play gigs in. And that is, guess what, 100 to 500. (laughs) So you've already got a double whammy. And then if you add another whammy that you can control, which is this tilt we're talking about, especially if the tilt starts higher like, you know, 1K or somewhere up there, which hopefully it doesn't, but a lot of systems have that tilt all the way up, you know, all the way from you know, 800 and up, culminating in, as we, as you joked, 20 dB of, of bottom end at 60 hertz. It's, you know, it's very important to understand that, that when you put nice, reasonably flat microphones in front of guitar amps and drums and all sorts of stuff and you turn them on for nothing, without any help at all, you are going to get more low-mid summation between 100 and 500 than in the other areas or in the other areas of the frequency spectrum. So when you're tuning, you know, as you see, if you've read my article, you'll know I advocate flat down to 100 and then for rock and roll a 4 to 6 dB shelf, but nev- that shelf must never be allowed to go above 100 because then the overtone uh, it hits the reverb of the room and the summation area. So then you get, you know, you get that overtone. In other words, the kick drum is suddenly too long in a reverberant room. And by long, I mean the decay 
uh, is hurting your mix. It's not helping your mix. All I want out of a kick drum is the fundamental. And that means, you know, balance and control of the low and especially the balance and control of the low as it goes down to the sub, you know, that balance is important too. Anyway, I, I, I've preached enough. I'll let you talk. I'm sorry. Well, that's why we've, we've asked you to be here. So please, please, by all means, feel free. But I just wanted to mention to the listeners that the article you mentioned, um, you've written a, an updated version of your article about um, your, your linear approach to tuning PAs. And uh, we're going to be posting that up on ProSound Web shortly. And so we will put a link to that article in the description of this podcast so the folks that are listening can check out Howard's article and see what he's writing about there. I do have a question. Um, do you use near field monitors at front of house? Uh, no, I don't. Not as a normal habit. I carry them on the road um, for ridiculously stupid um, forced to mix in positions in <laughs> bizarre theatres. In other words, um, way, way, way back under a balcony in behind so that I'm the furthest person from the sound source. That then I would probably set them up as some sort of near-field reference, but you need to be careful with that because, of course, you need to time them correctly to the mains, but you also need to um, balance them correctly against the mains. You know, I it's as simple as... Uh, playing a music track, walking to the middle of the theatre outside the balcony, getting a level and then relating that level on the monitor's level back at the mixing console so that you, what you believe is too soft or too loud actually relates to the bulk of the room. Do you use but, headphones but, a lot? No. No, I don't. I use headphones only for uh, line checks and so I can hear hums and buzzes and whatever. I don't. I don't really. Um, I don't really believe because the headphones take out the room, you know, and the room becomes so much a part, you know, as as it relates to the use of effects, reverbs and stuff. You know, the the room becomes so much a part of what the final overall result is that headphones tend to shut that out. So I'm not not a not a big headphone user for the mix. I'm a headphone user for troubles and line checks and, you know, isolating things and hearing spill and all that sort of stuff, but not... Blocking not out your not-so-favorite song, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've done that. I'm going to go ahead and say that out loud. I've done that at Monitor World. I've definitely plugged my uh, in-ear pack, taken it out and put it in my phone for a couple songs. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. a fan of those ones didn't even yeah. want to see them in the set list how did you get the the question then would be how did you get the song playing off your phone in sync with what the band was playing I'd be very <laughs> I didn't that try to nod my head to it <laughs> okay <laughs> just, just, just checking because I can only, only I can only imagine the lack of syncing going on I, I think the reason that I asked the headphone question was is you're talking about the linear sound off the console compared to the the sound off the front of the PA. So obviously you have to kind of use some kind of reference to see what you're getting out of your desk. I mean, flat is flat, you know, for sure. If you're not uh, EQing a lot or using a lot of dynamics or anything on your console side, what you represent there, um, you know, how would a younger guy be able to go, oh, this is what my console sounds like. This is what's coming off my desk opposed to what's coming off my speaker. Okay, that's 
you you've hit right at the um, the heart of uh, the the idea of using smart in a way that does the linear comparison. In other words, the reference channel for my smart setup is a mono sum, an accurately mono summed uh, version of the main mix coming out of the board. Uh, usually, Perfect. you know, off a matrix or whatever. So the reference for smart is whatever's coming out of the board, flat, you know, straight out of the board. Compared with a mic, like during the show, obviously the mic is placed very close to the mixing console and uh, it's sort of representative of what I'm hearing at the mix. To tune the PA, obviously the mic, you know, I have a, a electrosonics and I move well, I have a couple actually, but um, and a multi-input uh, uh, interface box, but I move it around a lot during the tuning because I'm checking multiple things when I tune a PA. I'm not only checking the frequency, you know, the transfer of that PA, how how the how it sounds tonally. I also move the mic forward to check that the shading or the balance of the PA down the front is the same as what I believe at the mix and to some degree what I hear three-quarters of the way back and then what's happening at the top. How much low f- high-frequency roll-off have I really got to deal with up there and do I need to do anything with that line array to push more highs up there or or shade the bottom? The normal thing, as you know, when you fall off the edge of a line array, like the, the bottom edge of a line array, um, the summation changes between the componentry um, such that, you know, that big lovely mid-warmth and everything now doesn't exist down the bottom front rows because you've, fall, you've, you've fallen off the bulk of the line array. You're not looking, you're only barely looking at one speaker, depending how it's pinned, of course. But so the tendency down front is for it to be bright um, simply because, not because there's anything wrong with the line array, because it inherently, I call it falling off the edge of the array. The response tonality has fallen, you know, has the array doesn't exist anymore, so there's no more array to sum with. So it's bright down there. Um, and then, you know, you, you move the mic up the top at the back of an arena, for example, because you're checking the the real long throw component of an array. Um, you, when you pin an array, you need to be very careful what you do at the top of the array to get, you know, depending on the distance you're trying to throw, um, how, many, um, how many long throw components have you created by summation of the top boxes of a line array. Um, I see some mistakes often happen even with our guys that, it all looks lovely and beautiful and sweet and kind, except that they've wasted about four or five boxes of the array covering the first ten rows, you know, which is blatantly wrong because that those extra boxes in terms of the overall pinning of the array could have been used far more usefully up the top of the array as a, as a flatter... Um, uh, longer throw type concept and reduce the number of boxes that are trying to that are curved down under the bottom of the array you know getting sound down the front provided you know you use some clever i clever things you know front fills are a good idea although they're not al- always real estate possible 
Um, you know, many shows don't like the concept of front fills because, you know, they have an ego ramp out there or whatever. But, you know, it's pretty easy to get sound down the front. You don't need five boxes to cover the first ten rows, you know, so that's it's all about all that stuff. So, you know, I, I suppose getting back to your point, it, it's, it's um, the linear transfer means that if you set smart up the way I described, the reference being the, the, what's coming out of the mixer, it doesn't matter what's coming out of the mixer, whether it's the live show, your pre-recorded music, your voice, your anything. Because you're directly comparing what's coming out of the mixer to what a microphone next to your ears is hearing with the correct time offset, et cetera, um, that to me is telling you, okay, where I'm, stand, where I'm sitting mixing this show is a true representation of what's coming out of the mixing console. And that's the prince. That's that's the secret of it, really, of all of this stuff. And there's a Dave Rat trick that I picked up years ago. And Jim, I think you you mentioned a very similar thing in an article that you wrote for Church Sound Magazine. And it's okay. Well, what if we don't have access to a tool like Smart or an analyzer? And the idea is okay. Put some music on at your console. Grab a pair of headphones. Cue that that music up, and then EQ the outputs of the console until the PA sounds like the headphones. Just match them. Um, match the PA to that neutral headphone reference. And and so the idea is the same. The idea is we want to make sure that what's leaving the desk is what the same thing as what we're hearing at the mix position and then by extension, you know, everywhere else. And so that's, it's the sort of idea that the PA is not editorializing anything. It's just relaying the signal that went into it. Exactly. That, right. that is the key. You, you, you've hit it exactly. And don't get me wrong, that that headphone method is another quick method if you haven't done what I said before, which is train your ears to know what linear sound, you know, flat sound is mm-hmm. um, by listening to your reference tracks over and over and over for years. And, you know, I've had the same I've had the same set of reference tracks with additions for years and years and years. I just know I only need the first 12 bars or something to know, okay, it's too warm today or there's too much sub bass or it's too, you know, I, it's just I have brute force trained myself to do that. But the other method, if you haven't done that, is yes, get a beautiful pair of headphones that really are not overly bass heavy and not overly highs heavy and, you know, and relate it to that. At least you've got a reference point. So can, what's, one of your, uh, what's one of your go-to tuning tracks? Lay, lay it on us here. Uh, oh, I knew you. I, damn, I knew you. <laughs> well, hold on. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring oh, no, an no, obvious no, no. question here that's kind of funny. So uh, you work with Sting. So <laughs> no, it, it's no. Not, see, he plugs no, in no, his it, headphones. I know, no, I know. I do. no, just give me a second. I'll pull up my iTunes and I'll tell you. <laughs> exactly. But it's, it's like um, Chris Jones. Uh, I think it's. I think his name is Chris Jones. Um, wait a minute, Jim. You had a comment. Oh well, well, I'll just throw it in quick while Howard's looking looking these tracks up. Um, uh, my my go to method uh, as I keep trying to work towards this this more linear PA and just weaning myself off any tilt, you know, that's that's uh, in the system is to you know do rehearsals and. Um, you know, try to spend as much time before you get in front of the PA, especially if it's with a new band, try to build that mix so it sounds like, I'm going to say a record, but, uh, you know, records are 
tilted mastering wise a little bit as well, but, um, you know, so that it sounds like what you would expect the, the band to sound like, as Howard said, you know, you know, this band, you've heard their songs, you've heard them uh, in the car, you've heard them, uh, you know, all over the place, you know what it should sound like. If you can get your console to sound that way mm. before you ever get it in front of a PA and then you, then you get your system to be linear with the use of measurement and or ear tuning, then I think, uh, you can, you can, um, get to that point kind of by, um, you know, by, by using headphones or near fields is, is kind of to answer Kyle. Cause he was saying, you know, do you use these things? I use them mostly in the pre mode prior to the tour starting. And then, right. then I'm there. So are you yeah. using like a virtual sound check playback to, to build your mix before you get in front of a PA? Is that, is that your approach basically? Yes. Yeah. So I'll start by, you know, um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, recording a couple of rehearsals and then, um, playing those things back and working on the mix. And, um, if you just, you know, use your fairly flat near fields or headphones to, to get 80% of the way there with mm -hmm. the tracks, then you should be in a good place. It's funny, Jim, that's exactly what I do. At uh, production rehearsals, I insist on being in a isolated room right. with a pair of good monitors and I record uh, just for convenience. I use uh, uh, Logic Pro X and I record the early rehearsals, rough as they might be, with stops and starts and the band want to change the arrangements and everything. But the point, the point of it all is that I've got a real reference and I don't do any reverbs or anything on anything they're straight out of the head amp then I decide okay and I'm very careful about gain structure between the playback and the original in terms of head amp levels and uh, if I get it right it'll tell me the thresholds of any gates I use the thresholds of compressors it'll tell me um, what reverb works for a certain song and everything I mean it's that's the golden way to do it in an isolated room um, because then we get back to what we're really talking about is before I leave production rehearsals, by the time I leave production rehearsals, not only have I got a reference mix, I've got a reference set up on my, you know, my various um, uh, reverbs and stuff, but I've also got um, an, an overall uh, concept of what is coming out of the mixing console mm -hmm. because that's going to be my reference because, you know, I don't, get to, I don't get to a gig one day and start grabbing EQ, you know, and I use absolutely the bare minimum of EQ on the entire console. I use good mics. I'm anal about where they're set, where they are on the stage. I can't tell you the number of times backline guys look at me funny. It's like, what are you doing on the stage? I'm doing my, <laughs> I'm doing my job. That's my favorite. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite part. I love going to set up my own mics. That's yeah. I don't know. Well, because you know, no one understands. You know, if you want the snare drum to sound exactly like it sounded in production rehearsals, and and the um, mic stand is loose and the thread is not tight and it swings away halfway through this, the, the show and you think, oh, the snare's changed. Uh, uh, and you, you can't see what's gone. <laughs> you know, you get you, the thing, there are things after 48 years, the things you get anal about 
you know, and, and the other one, I, I catering. think I'm more. I, Let me guess. <laughs> Kate, you get well, anal about catering. Well, <laughs> bre- breakfast. Breakfast, <laughs> breakfast yeah, is, I, yeah, I, for sure. I didn't, I didn't want to say catering because it, 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 drum- it dumps so many poor catering companies into. You know, <laughs> my, only, my only comment on catering is why do they not have plain food for plain people? You know, <laughs> yeah. Why do they have to be fancy all the time? That's, yes, well, thank well, you, that, thank you. You know, fancy. I mean, you know, uh, what's the soup today? Oh, it's um, tomato bisque, and it's so spicy. No one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm serious. I mean, plain food for plain people. You know, and the funny thing is, you know, we get we go to you because. Sting's biggest market, obviously, has worked so hard. It's it's Europe, so we go to Europe all the time, and these these places in Scandinavia, you know, these working hard, lovely girls and everything in the catering company, they think, oh, we give them a taste of a, of our food from oh. uh, from Norway or from smoked meats and da, 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 you know, and all this weird stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, um, Omnibus tongue and stuff. <laughs> stuff. Well, I couldn't. Yes. I could not think of anything weirder. But anyway, <laughs> and no one. And it sits there all day, all day, and no one eats it. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's enough on catering. I think we've sweaty meats and cheese. We put a real. We put a real tilt on that, didn't we? Howard, I we're we're kind of up against the clock a little bit, but Chris has got Sorry. a burning burning question for you here, um, and yes. so I'm gonna I'm gonna let him off the leash. <laughs> okay. So Howard, so just in doing some research, you know, it's apparent that you had worked on many uh, consoles uh, through your career. It looks like six plus. I wonder if maybe just you could rattle off some of the ones that you have been working with. Uh, it seems like you know the Shoko Show console might have been one of uh, the highlights of of maybe later years, and then more recently, I think the Studer. Uh, so I wonder yes. maybe. You could you dive into that a little bit. Yes, I uh, the the story of the Studer is um, is is pretty simple. I I was in New York for an AES when uh, this is before Sting took my life for the rest of my life, um, <laughs> and uh, I went I was at an AES in New York, and uh, I was invited upstairs to a one of those demo rooms, and there was the lovely studio version of the Studer, the Vista 9 and the Vista 8, which uh, broadcast classical music type consoles, large scale, large format consoles. And I met, uh, who was there, I met the president at that time of Studer and we clicked. I mean, he, you know, he's a dear, has remained a dear friend for many, many years. And, you know, I sat in front of it for way too long because there was other people lined up and I sat there and I sat there and I sat there and I started, I had to eventually get up when the dirty looks became so obvious. Um, (laughs) And I played and I played and I played. They had music tracks going and everything and just fell in love with the interface. Absolutely so intuitive and so quick. My firm belief having transitioned in my career from analog world to digital world I firmly believe that the learning curve between analog consoles and digital consoles should 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 be as smooth as absolutely possible, and I think I've been borne out even to this day, in terms of um, you know my show console had um, a true laid out like an analog input channel on a larger scale, but it had an actual um, 
input channel laid out in the middle of the console so that when you hit uh, select, you got a very recognisable digital controlled analogue, which was what that console was, version of an input channel. What you thought was the pan control was the pan control, what you thought the EQ was laid out like an analogue and the whole thing. And many people have attempted in recent years and not so recent years with digital consoles go down a sort of another path, which I believe those paths have gone down uh, in error and the popularity of those certain consoles has borne me out on that. And what I mean by that, it's like uh, a car manufacturer putting, you know, the the um, the gas pedal on the left side and the, you know, in other words, there are accepted norms in all these things, which there were in analog consoles. There are accepted norms. There was a block that was the EQ. There was a block for the head amp, there was, you know, the gain, the input gain. There was a block for this, for the sends and all that sort of stuff. And... Lo and behold, um, uh, the lovely um, people from Yamaha have come out recently with a console that actually does the same thing. If you look at the right side of the latest Rivage, the PM7, PM10 console, there is a full input channel laid out completely up there, which makes the learning curve absolutely minimal. Whereas certain competing consoles, who don't, of course, need to be named, have gone down various paths for compactness and whatever, and they've turned them into a nightmare of understanding. I mean, the learning curve on some of them is just so steep. And I put myself, you know, I put myself, whenever I, you know, over the years, a lot of new consoles come into uh, our office and I always take the time with the manual and whatever and sit down there and try and put a show into them, which is the way I learn a console. And so many of them, there's so many things that are just too many button pushes to get to something, non-intuitive work surface, non-intuitive patch bay, non-intuitive many things that, you know, those consoles... You know, there are certain consoles that we, our company, would never put on a festival as the universal console because poor young, you know, 20-year-old first big uh, mixing job with up-and-coming band just would be, it would it would cripple him. You know, he wouldn't, he'd have a very hard time getting a result. Um, so... Whenever I've designed mixing consoles, I always backdate myself to years and years and years ago when I knew nothing, which was, well, day before yesterday. But (laughs) um, I backdate myself and I think if I was a young guy barely learning, you know, a Midas console or something, not a Midas, a, a really simple small console, and I suddenly hit a digital console, what would I expect to see? What would be my mindset of how to get sound out of that console and that's you know everything I've designed I've always tried to make it as intuitive with the the lowest possible learning curve that I possibly can you know and um, some manufacturers um, 
especially manufacturers who use dedicated digital engineers to design their consoles. That's the greatest trap of all. Fortunately, a lot of the manufacturers have a group of consultants. Uh, I am one of them. Um, I'm under NDA, so I'm not going to mention who they are, but there are more than one, let's say. And they actually ask users what they expect to see on a console. And I think that's vitally, vitally important because an engineer, the problem now is we've got digital uh, designs so advanced, we can almost do anything on a digital console. We can almost have a button to, you know, move it 10 feet to the left or, you know, anything. (laughs) I'm exaggerating. But I think you get the idea that – and some of them – with certain consoles that have come out recently or over the last few years, they've actually done that. There's things that do this. but And then, you know, every time I stand in front of a, a sales pitch for a new console and the guy says to me, well, you can do this by hitting this and this. Or if you don't want to do it that way, you can hit it this way and then hit the other button and then go back to that one. But then that one, you can program that to be that one, but it's not always that one if it's programmed the other way. To, you know, I've switched off by about the second sentence because, well, p- put yourself back to reality, to the young guy, walks up to the console, no years of experience, no design of knowing what's behind button number five or button number eight. And the console should be so intuitive that he can stand there, yes, with a few questions and whatever, but he can do a show on it. And that's been borne out by the most popular consoles. Well, there you have it, Chris. How's that? Yep. Just scratch your console itch a little bit, man. That, that's great. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> it's good stuff. Thank you. <laughs> well, Howard, thank you so much for for joining us and, and lending us your wisdom, and Jim, you you as well. It's been a it's been, we have a star lineup tonight. I've, it's been really really a real treat to have you guys on. So thanks, thank you so much. We should do this thank again. You. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, I'd love people to, uh, if they want to know what I'm really talking about, they all they need to do is read my article, and it, it's all explained, folks. <laughs> it's it's very well explained. I I read it recently, and. Um, I asked Howard if I could share it, and he said, by all means. So I'm spreading the linear mixing uh, approach and trying to get more uh, fans. And if if you got one more second, Michael, I just wanted to say, as far as the PA companies go, and I'm going to try not to ruffle any feathers here because I I love (laughs) a lot of PA uh, manufacturers. Um, What about presets? You know, can... Um, it used to be that there was more more uh, presets that you could load that mm. kind of gave you more options, but a lot of the a lot of the stock presets for these uh, uh, bigger speakers are very tilted. And is there yes. maybe an option in the future for um, you know this this is for for speech or this is, you know, for a rock band or this for classical or something, something where you can say, I just want to start with it, not tilted. You know what I'm saying? You Um, you make, you make an incredibly good point. I, I have spoken to many manufacturers about exactly that. And, um, without saying too much, it may be in the, if you, if you certain, um, because I maintain, and I tell people this, uh, regardless of the tilt, 
regardless of anything. In 2020, there are no bad line arrays. There are many bad drivers of those line arrays. There are not all the – I've used probably every line array known to mankind in the last few years, you know, and I can always get a result from them. You know, yes, yes, I have the equipment to take them over and and make them my own because that's how I drive them. I drive them with my – uh, delay and EQing equipment and, and therefore it becomes my system. But um, it's not the line array, you know. It's just that um, there was a period or there seems to have been this concept that, you know, all these live shows need all this big low-end tilt, you know, and that may be very valid. If you're doing an EDM show, yes, you need that big low-end tilt. My argument is the low-end tilt or the low-end needs to be in the real mix, Correct. not after the mixing console. Yes. And that's all, that's all I'm trying to uh, get across. And I'm right there with you, Howard. Yeah. And, and I will say, just, just Jim, to kind of tag on your statement a little bit, I have seen recently there's been a lot of development in, you know, I mean, different manufacturers calling it different things, but a coupling control or an, an array offset right. idea. Right, Absolutely. Yeah, it's somewhere between a shelf and a and a wide parametric down there that kind of you know you can punch in one number and kind of pull it back a little bit. Right. So I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, the tools are, are there for sure. The the the, the new yeah. uh, system processing software tools they're there. I just um, sometimes I just don't want to have to start by undoing some things. I would rather just say I want this PA to be less tilted preset number forty seven and hit that yeah. and go. And as a, and Jimmy make a good point that um, many many system engineers now in Europe uh, with certain array model certain array uh, brands and types have the tools you just need to ask for them. I mean I walk up I walk up to guys I know in Europe from uh, various places where we Sting goes back to all the time. And oh, you want the you want the control da 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 da, you know. And I get that, and therefore I almost have to do nothing because there's nothing else wrong with the, that sound system, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. There's nothing else wrong with it. It just needs to. All I ask them to do is take the tilt back to where I like it, and I don't have to do anything. I almost right. I just go check one two. Oh yeah, perfect. Thank you. End of story. <laughs> you know. Great. It's, it's that easy. But, you know, the tools are there. A lot of times uh, the perception of what flat sound is isn't. <laughs> that's right. what I mean about that's what I mean about bad drivers. It's not bad yes. PA, it's the guy driving. <laughs> and it's interesting when you share a PA, as you said, when you're the headlining act on the day, sometimes um, you have to say, do I just want to do this on my own because I want these other six engineers to get the PA that they would expect with the nominal preset, you know, so I'll just do it on my own so I can do my thing. And, and if, you know, Mm. because that's the thing, it's, you almost have to, if you give some folks a flat PA, they will go, Oh my God, it's broken. You know, they just, (laughs) they they won't know where to, where to start. So that is, you, you, you've brought up a whole we need to do this again because you've okay. just you've just delved into a let's do it again. A very <laughs> you've just delved into a very tricky area because yes. do, you know many times if I've got 
a young band supporting us, which a lot of times we do. We have a young, reasonably local band and, you know, they're nervous as hell. It's their first big opportunity supporting Sting. Oh, my God. Um, I will take the left, right and the subfeed off his board and plug it into a stereo, you know, a, a line input on my board so he does get it. And he's, a lot of times he's stunned because his mix suddenly, oh, my God, what did you do, you know? Same as, you know, I have owners of PA systems who sit behind me at the mix and go, oh, my God, what did you do to my PA? I've never heard it sound so good, you know, because you have to know what it should sound like and that gets back to what we talked about in the beginning. It's one, you know, okay, you leave the big tilt in but then record it and that kick drum's not real. The kick drum's Mm -hmm. created by the tilt in 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 the sound system. It's not real kick drum anymore. And I think that's a really important point and, and something that a lot of people say, well, I like the way it sounds. Yes, you can still have the same sound, but like you said, Howard, just do it Do it in the console. Don't do it in the PA. That way, if it comes out of the console like that, it's correct in the room, it's correct out of the PA, it's correct in the board feeds, it's correct in the press feeds. Yeah. Everything sounds yeah. like it should. And I think I think that's the issue. I don't think anybody's the anti-bass crusader here. I think we're just saying get the EQ in the right spot. No, no one, you know, that that's not ever the impression I want to get across that I'm anti-low frequency at all. Um, But I will say that uh, the sound of a show should be horses for courses. You know, what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is, you know, if you go to an ACDC show, uh, you expect it to be really loud and really strong and whatever. You go to a sting crowd where the audience is a lot older, they have money, uh, they keep coming back every year. They don't expect their head to be blown off. So mm-hmm. you give them exactly what they expect, and you will have a winning, a winning combination. The uh, the the thing about you know giving them what they want is is the key really to live sound, I believe. But it's it's interesting what you just said applies, and it's amazing that the number of guys that are also a studio engineer, in other words, used to sitting in front of reasonably flat monitor speakers and mixing and stuff do a instantly want that tilt gone oh my god this pa is so bassy you know mm-hmm. yeah. but they because again they know what it should sound like yeah and i think that's a really interesting sort of duality because if you're working in studio and i, I i'm very rarely in the studio these days but you know a lot of it is on I want my monitors to be invisible. They shouldn't have a sound. They shouldn't contribute anything to this mix. I want to hear the mix that I'm working on. Um, And then, you know, if you're, if you're then extending that approach to, to the live world, you know, I mean, it, it just makes sense. Now I can take that mix right out of the studio, throw it through my console and it should sound the same. It should sound like it's supposed to sound. Exactly. Or take it, take it everywhere else and it should sound the same. You know, and that's, (laughs) and that. Well, I was I was so blown away that I got the comment back from you guys about, oh my god, it does sound like, it does sound like the show. Hey guys, <laughs> that's the key. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it does. It will sound like you, your board mix that you hand to the artist will sound like what the show sounds. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, Howard, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real treat, and Jim, you as well. It's been uh, it's been really cool having you guys here with us. So thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great to uh, be on the same panel with you, Howard. It's a, it's an honor and a privilege. Yep. 
for sure. Yeah, I hope I, all of us. I hope I didn't overstay my welcome. Well, you're, you're, you know what I was just going to say? Not only are you welcome anytime, but please come back and talk to us again, man. Uh, we'd love to have you back. You as well, Jim, obviously. Maybe we can do this again if we can get the stars to align. Um, and uh, we are going to put in the description of this podcast, make sure we have a link to Howard's article where he discusses his approach to system tuning. And we will also put a link to the article that Jim and I wrote about our viewpoints on the tilt thing. And uh, Jim, maybe we should do yeah, a, uh, I, an update. <laughs> I think it's important. I think it's important you have more than just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, and we need go. Kyle's opinion about uh, home food delivery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think I don't know that we can divide a devote a whole segment to that, but it, yes, it is a, we can. It is, it is, it is a disturbing, we're willing, we're very willing disturbing. Thing. We will try. Catering. But I do want to I do want to say big thank you to Doug Larson from LinkedIn, who said, "Hey, man, I've been listening to your podcast, and in case you're ever in Jersey, and he sent me a link to a good taco spot." So there it is. See? <laughs> so thank you for the recommendation. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, thanks. Right. Thanks very much, everyone. Uh, you know, check us out on the usual platforms. You can reach us at if you send us an email, signal number two noise podcast at gmail.com. And uh, we will talk to everyone very soon. Uh, check back next week. Thanks very much. Bye.